Young Europeans deserve opportunities. But I also want all young people to be given a real choice in life. Nous avons devant nous des défis historiques. For the good of future generations. Hello, I'm Victor Jack, and welcome to Generation Politics, a new podcast and joint initiative by two Cambridge University societies, European Horizons and Selwyn Polsock. Across this series, our aim will be to help empower young people, and young Europeans in particular, by shedding light on the political issues which are most important to Gen Z, our generation. With this in mind, we're polling our online followers and friends on the issues which matter most to them, and using this to determine the topics for our episodes. In our first episode, we take on something which affects not just young Europeans, but young people across the world. The recent US elections that took place last week, a critical turning point for the next four years. Today, we unpack this pivotal event with two interviewees, and we'll tackle the implications of this election on populism, polarisation, climate change, and on many other issues. First up, we speak with David Runciman, Professor of History and Politics at Cambridge, public intellectual and fellow of the British Academy. He's also the author of numerous critically acclaimed books such as How Democracy Ends and hosts a hugely popular podcast, Talking Politics, which partly helped inspire this podcast too. Hi, Professor Runciman. Thanks for joining us. A key issue in the surprise victory of President Trump in 2016 was a severe underestimation of his chances by pollsters. After much soul-searching, many polling companies adapted their models to take into account factors they hadn't before, such as education level. But this election, they once again underestimated Trump's vote. One polling aggregator, Real Clear Politics, showed Biden winning Ohio by one point, whereas he lost by a margin of 8.1. And in Florida, 538, another pollster, had Biden 2.5 points ahead, whereas he lost by 3.4 points. What do you think are the reasons for this? And is it time we stop taking polling so seriously? Uh, I think it's definitely time we stop taking polling so seriously. Uh, it's just a function of the world that we live in that you know, the coverage of this election has been going on for about two years and there isn't always that much to talk about. So people obsess on the polls because there's like a vacuum. Where there's a vacuum, polling will fill it. And you can see, it's like addicts. You can see the kind of commentators. They know they shouldn't obsess about the polls but they've got nothing else to do. Um, I think the pollsters, so, you know, since I've been following politics, this is true in the UK, uh, you know, the famous polling failure in UK politics was in 1992, where people thought Neil Kinnock would beat John Major, and John Major won, and actually that, those polls were even further out. So that's, that's what, nearly 30 years ago, polling companies have been trying to learn the lessons, and then they keep getting it wrong. Uh, it turns out that these methodological tweaks don't seem to make a huge amount of difference. Um, and I mean, I have to say, I'm not an expert on polling, but it seems to me the basic mistake is the question is the wrong question. So they ask people who you're going to vote for. That's the wrong question to ask. And it does turn out there are better indicators in polling, including who do you think is going to win. So more people thought Trump would win than said they would vote for Trump. But also attitudinal questions. I mean, I know people who thought that the the best test for Trump would be his approval ratings, which were ticking up again. Um, and as soon as Trump got close to 46, which is roughly, I think, where he was on the real clear politics, just under, um, that was an indicator he had a really good chance. <clears throat> so polling is broken, no question, and we should spend less time fixating on it. I mean, the other thing to say about this election is Trump, you know, the big story is that, um, I, I was reading this morning, so it may not be true, that um, more, more people voted for Donald Trump than any Republican in history. So big turnout election, the Trump vote turned out much more than in 2016, but so did the Biden vote. The Biden vote turned out too, particularly in mail-in voting. Um, you know, the story of this election is that both sides 
you know, their supporters were enthused. Um, and the trouble with polling is that it didn't pick up on the enthusiasm of the Trump supporters. So the other thing that polling should do is not ask who you're going to vote for, but try and gauge enthusiasm. And I got a lot of emails from, you know, novel, not polling companies, but sort of market research companies who were, who were looking at enthusiasm metrics on social media and saying this is going to be much closer. And I've definitely got a couple of emails from people saying this is going to be about 50-48 based on social media metrics. Well, I think it's going to turn out to be closer to 51-48. But so, you know, you can measure it, but asking people how they're going to vote, that's a really stupid question. This election also showed that America is deeply polarised, more than ever before. In two towns in Massachusetts, Sutton and Webster, Biden won by one vote. And a YouGov poll conducted in 2008, and again with the same questions in September this year, found that support for cross-party marriages had fallen dramatically. Only 50% of Republicans said they would not be upset at all if their child married a Democrat, down from 60% in 2008. The change was even bigger with Democrats, which fell 23 points, with only 43% saying they would not be upset at all. Do you feel this tribalism and deep partisan polarisation will continue persisting? And drawing on any historical parallels, has it ever been this bad? And are there solutions to breaking this gridlock? Um, it's a good question. I, I, so that's always been one of my favourite questions, that um, the measure of would you let your daughter or son marry a Republican or Democrat? And if you go further back, it's even starker, because I think about 40, 50 years ago, only 5% of people were upset by it. So now we're at 50%. I mean, it's astonishing. Has the tribalism ever been this bad? Yeah, it's been worse. The American Civil War was more tribal. You know, it was, but the thing that people uh, you know, often point out about the American Civil War is the parties came out of that. And you know, American politics in the second half of the 19th century was pretty grim in all sorts of ways, not least the, you know, the terrible consequences of the abandonment of Reconstruction and the, the rise of a kind of white supremacist order in the American South. But the political parties, despite all the horror, kind of adapted to it. Um, and survived it, um, and came through it, and and they are still, you know, the parties have changed their character. My God, but it was still talking about Republicans broadly and Democrats. Um, so it has been worse. This isn't the worst of it, and it is really important to emphasise. I mean, it's early days, and this election has got a long way to go. We still don't know who won when you and I are talking, but we, it's probably going to be Biden. But Trump will challenge it, and there's a lot of fear about you know the consequences of this taking to the streets and so on. This has not been a violent election, um, and the, the fallout, it could get worse. I mean, I could be saying things that aren't true in a week's time, but relative to previous points in American history, this tribalism is not violent. There, it, there are moments of violence, and there are some people, I think, who are willing to do violence, but they are unquestionably the minority. Having said all of that, um, it is a kind of vicious cycle because the, what's happened in that period since '88, as you say, the, part of the fluidity was... You know, American politics was an attempt to kind of build and hold on to pretty broad church coalitions. Um, and it's moved to much more of a turnout politics than a shifting coalition politics. So you win or lose elections, and, and yesterday was a case in point, day before yesterday, by turning your supporters out. Uh, you don't change people's minds. So the crucial, crucial lesson of 2016, the reason Trump won, he, didn't, he barely persuaded any Democrats to vote for him. But he did persuade quite a few Democrats to stay at home by rubbishing Hillary Clinton, particularly certain demographics, young women, uh, young African-American men, and so on. Weirdly, this time, I mean, people, people aren't comfortable with saying this, but this time, Trump did a better job of broadening his coalition than Biden did. 
Um, Trump has done well among African Americans, very well among Latinos, much better among young voters. People who say that the Republican Party has become this narrow, whites-only, old people party and just clings on to this sort of dying breed of people while demography swirls around it, it's not true. You know, I mean, if you want to class the first presidential debate, I don't think changed a single human being's mind about either candidate. But I think it's possible that um, you know, some of Trump's energy fired his people up. Um, and actually, I think some of Biden's lack of energy may have cost him a few votes. That's the politics we're in. It's been worse. It's not particularly violent. The divisions are real, but it's structural. That's the, the challenge. It's structural. As of this recording, the Senate race is looking very tight and Georgia faces a runoff. If the Senate stays Republican as Biden takes power, this will be the first time a newly elected Democratic president was inaugurated without a Democratic House and Senate since 1884. What can Biden realistically hope to achieve in his term in this situation, given the Senate's importance in legislating? Did not know that. There you go. You've educated me. Well, that's amazing, um, and it's not good for Biden. I mean, it's and the Senate is the is the great barrier in American politics, and it and it is you know there's increasing focus on this. It is the you know it was designed to be unrepresentative. Um, it wasn't you know in the sense of direct popular mandate politics because you get two senators no matter if no one lives in your state, and so it's created this you know the figure that's bandied around, which is that thirty percent of Americans elect seventy percent of senators, and seventy percent of Americans elect thirty percent. You know if you live in California, New York, uh, your vote counts for far less than if you live in Montana or North Dakota, um, and. It's really hard for Democrats because, you know, they pile up votes in states where um, you only still only get two senators. Um, so Biden faces a huge challenge. Trump, Trump's probably going to lose. It was still a really good night for the Republican Party uh, because it's going to be incredibly hard for the Democrats to do anything about the Supreme Court. You know, Biden is going to have to fall back on his commission of academics to review that, you know, blah de blah rather than if he'd won the Senate, just railroading through whatever. Um, the Senate can block, the Senate can launch investigations, so you can be sure they'll be just chipping away at the Hunter Biden or whatever, you know, they'll find things. to. There will be payback for impeachment. They can't impeach Biden, but they can, you know, they can just keep the scandals alive. They can block. Um, they've got the court probably for the next 10, 20 years. Um, and they've got a base to, from which to build. And they're in opposition now, which is lovely being in opposition because you just get to complain all the time. Um, and they've got Trump trolling Biden from the wings. So I'm not saying it's going to be a disaster for Biden, but structurally, especially given that amazing stat you've just given me, it's a really weak position to start with. And then we have to remember, Biden has many qualities. He's experienced, he's, he's been around, he's old, and he is unquestionably... You know, I think he struggles with the presentational aspects of politics. He might be a good deal maker and whatever, but being president is a, is a kind of show. Trump was brilliant at the show. Trump's campaigning in the last few weeks has been amazing. Just the energy, the visibility, the dynamism, the madness, you know, the, just the kind of the show. Let's just call it the show. Biden did not put on a show. Biden can't put on a show. He's too old. He's too tired. Um, and then in the background, there will be this rumbling drumbeat from Republicans. They're going to, they're going to, it, once it's clear, if it's clear that Biden has won, this is going to be the mantra, which is Kamala is coming. And they're going to, it's going to be latent racism, but it's also going to be stoking a kind of fear that you know, he was the, the placeholder for a, 
a more left agenda. Um, and I have to say, I think the Republican Party is going to be very comfortable with that kind of politics. Donald Trump has been characterised by some commentators and academics as a typical populist and have subsequently argued that the success of this populism is ultimately emblematic of a crisis of representation in the US, a feeling that people's voices are neglected, their demands aren't met, and the mainstream parties perhaps are serving more their own interests far away in Washington than those of their constituents. Others have gone even further still and indicated this represents the decline and slow death of democracy. But to what extent do you think this is a fair analysis, given that Biden has already got more votes than any candidate since universal suffrage in the US, over 75 million and counting, while current initial estimates show that there was a 67% turnout this election, the highest since 1900? How do we square this circle? Has populism in this case not demonstrated an incredibly politically engaged citizenry and a thriving democracy rather than one in decline? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I think my instinct is that the fears about populism have been overblown. Um, I'm not one of those people. I mean, I wrote a book called How Democracy Ends, so I'm always lumped with the people who think this is the end. I don't think this is the end. That book was saying this is not how democracy ends. Democracy ends with different crises that are coming further down in the 21st century, including climate and other things. And the, the sort of rhetoric around you know, Trump has, and Trump's version of populism is both you know, on the slippery slope to what's happening in Hungary and Turkey and the Philippines and Brazil. I don't think it is. I think America's democratic institutions are more robust. I think American politics can withstand much more of this. I think, I mean, actually, I feel I've been proved right if Biden wins, which is I, in the book that I wrote, I said, look, what comes after Trump will be less. It, you know, it, it'll be more normal. The problems with American democracy are structural and institutional. They're not to do with the rhetoric of norms and values. I think most Americans are still pretty committed to democratic norms. I think most Americans are still pretty committed to the idea that elections decide who governs them. And if Trump loses, he'd better get on his bike or else they'll drag him out. Not all of them, but most of them think that. Um, populism is, uh, what's called populism, is also a form of democratic engagement. And no question, some people who felt excluded, just as in the Brexit referendums, are increasingly seeing uh, voting in these elections or in a referendum as an outlet for some of their views that they feel have been neglected. I think populists have a case when they say that the, the class of political representatives is not representative because they come from a kind of elite. I've been preoccupied for a while with the fact that the entry requirement of representative politics is now a university degree. I think every single United States senator now has a university degree. I think every single United States governor now has a university degree. Um, but most of their voters don't. I think a lot of it is overblown. There are huge risks, but the risks of populism are much stronger in countries with weaker institutions. Hungary, the Philippines, Brazil even. Now, a slightly less discussed part of this election are the ballot measures, in other words, kind of referendums proposing legal changes in their particular state, which were also put on people's ballots when they came to vote for the president. A few were particularly interesting. In Florida, the minimum wage was raised to $15, making it the highest minimum wage in the country alongside New York and Washington. States legalised recreational and commercial use of marijuana, Louisiana voted to limit abortion protections, and in California, citizens made it easier for Uber, Lyft and other so-called gig companies to treat their workers as independent contractors rather than employees. This is seen as a potentially major defeat for workers' rights because as an employee, you legally have quite a few more rights than as an independent contractor. Now, I wanted to draw your attention to Florida and California in particular. 
It's interesting to see how citizens in Florida, which has voted Republican in the last two elections and has a Republican governor, voted for a measure typically seen as more economically left-wing and progressive. While in California, which hasn't voted for a Republican president in more than 30 years and is generally seen as a sort of progressive bullock state, voted for a more typically economically right-wing measure. What do you make of this? And why do you think this is the case? So can I just say that is a really excellent question. Um, so one aspect of that is no one should be surprised that a state that voted for Trump also voted for what might be called forms of um, what would in a European context be called more social democratic measures. Trump is not a typical Republican. He's not, you know, he's not a kind of austere Paul Ryan balance the books Republican. He's a rabble rouser. He's a spendthrift. You know, he's, he's massively personally in debt. Uh, he's not a tight money guy at all. Um, and a lot of what he offers to American workers is what was traditionally associated with you know, these distinctions don't really make sense much more for the reasons you said, but left left leaning politics. That's Trump. You know, you wouldn't have got that if um, I don't know, I mean Ted Cruz or but definitely say Paul Ryan was running for president. So the fact that Florida votes Trump and also votes to raise the minimum wage, I mean, in a way, I think the more surprising thing is that Floridans haven't been disappointed that Trump hasn't delivered nearly as much on this as he promised. You know, Trump promised big spending for workers in different ways. He didn't really deliver it because Mitch McConnell's going to block it. You know, the, the Republican Senate's going to block this stuff, whether it comes from a Republican or a Democrat in the White House. It's also a sign of the vibrancy of American democracy that these there are other routes to get these things done. The states are still immensely powerful. You can do things at a state level you can't do at a federal level. Um, so that's not a surprise. Republicans would say it's absolutely not a surprise that um, Democratic California also votes to you know oppress the workers because Republicans think that Democrats are hypocrites. You know Republicans think that when it comes to the crunch, Democrats signal virtue and then shaft people less well off than themselves in the back whenever they get the chance. Not sure I fully agree with that, but again, there is there's no question there's a sort of element, particularly if some of this politics is identity and cultural, um, that people who maybe vote one way on identity and cultural issues nonetheless are pretty good at defending their interests. So when I was in California a few years ago, it was the first time I ever took Uber, I was in LA, and I suddenly thought, my God, if you lived in LA, this is actually, you depend on this. <laughs> You don't want them unionized and going on strike because you wouldn't be able to get around. Um, and so I can imagine how you could both vote Democrat and also not want the your know, Uber workers to go on strike. It's an excellent question because politics is complicated. Great. Well, thank you. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Professor Runciman. Next up, we speak to Bill Barnard. Bill's a veteran of US politics. He's attended seven Democratic and Republican national conventions, including two as a state delegate. He's also a professor at the University of Alabama and former chair of the Democratic Party's official arm in Britain, Democrats Abroad UK. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us what a Biden cabinet would look like? How would it be different to Trump's? And do you think the rumours are true about Bernie Sanders positioning himself to be Labour secretary? I, I do believe that Bernie Sanders has expressed an interest in a Labour secretary, and it might be a position where he could be very useful. It, and it, it is not in and of itself 
a powerful cabinet position. On the other hand, it also it permits someone like Robert Reich when he held it uh, earlier uh, to serve as a champion for working class Americans and, and their particular interests, the interests that have sometimes been overlooked in the past. So he might very well end up there. There are other possibilities that probably won't happen. I don't think Senator Warren, who has sometimes been mentioned as a Treasury Secretary, that she would be appointed because that would open up a vacancy, a Senate vacancy in a state that has a Republican governor. So we, the Democrats would lose a a Senate vote. So that that won't happen, I don't believe. Uh, I think, by and large, Biden will uh, make certain uh, overtures, both to, to, to the more progressive wing of his party, may also make some overtures to people from the other party. I mean, it's been fairly common in the American past to have defense secretaries, for example, uh, from uh, uh, the other party, uh, or certain other positions as well. And you may very well see some of that, building upon the kind of appeal that he made during the election to um, moderate and responsible Republicans. So I think you're going to see a, a kind of unity cabinet. I hadn't thought of it in that terms, but in, insofar as he can achieve it, I think that's probably what you see. So some commentators have argued over the past week or so that the lack of a true blue wave arriving as Democrats in certain polls had predicted in both the presidential, Senate and House races, and some of the Democrats' key demographics such as Latino men and certain African Americans moving camps to Trump, that now it's time for the party to engage in some serious soul-searching in order to put itself into a better position going into the future. Do you think this is a fair argument? And if so, what soul-searching would it need to do? And where would this lead? I think we do have to take a good hard look at, at the areas in which we did not perform as well as we thought. I think uh, until we get the final figures and see what the data actually shows, I think the comments about um, Trump's appeal to uh, black men and to Hispanics is probably a bit overblown, except in Florida, which is a special situation because you've got a large Cuban population, you've got a large Venezuelan population who... who who were influenced by the ads uh, alleging Biden was a socialist. You also have in the Hispanic community, particularly in that part of uh, the U.S., uh, a fairly large phalanx of evangelical Christians uh, within the Hispanic community. Uh, the Hispanic community is remarkably diverse. It's very different in Arizona and in, in Texas. But even in Texas um, and in that part of the country, uh, Democrats have a challenge because, in part because the Republican parties in, in Texas have been accustomed to dealing with Hispanic, uh, a, a, a large segment of their population being Hispanic, uh, there has generally been a greater degree of support for Republicans there than you would expect. Uh, George W. Bush, when he ran, got one-third of the Hispanic vote in, in uh, Texas, uh, and it was wi widely expected, and in fact the Republican Party was urged uh, to d build upon that. Uh, there is a, within the Mexican community as well, the Hispanic community as well, a fairly strong streak of cultural conservatism, which is ripe for the Republicans to appeal to. So I think, yes, we will have to look at those. I think the degree to which there was change, other than perhaps the South Florida Hispanics, particularly the Cubans, where even the younger people seem to revert to the strongly pro-Republican stance of their, their parents and grandparents. Uh, other than that, I don't think you can find it that the change was as dramatic as perhaps some early commentators have suggested, and certainly as the president suggested. But yes, indeed, uh, we, we do need to look. We need to look as well to Biden made, did make inroads in working class areas in the upper Middle West. In the old Rust Belt, he did uh, carry some of the counties, got them back from Trump, 
but he also lost some others and some rural counties in particular uh, to an even greater degree uh, than uh, Clinton had four years before. We're going to have to ask hard questions about why that's so. As I said, as I've indicated in conversations with you before, um, the country has been segregating itself politically in, in a way and to a degree that is contrary to our, our historic pattern. Uh, and that may very well continue, and it may, it may make it more difficult for each of the two sides to understand each other and to have a greater degree of empathy with each other. Uh, so we'll have to see. But yes, we need to look, we need to step back enjoy the fact that we have defeated Donald Trump, uh, that was a, one of our main aims, but then ask questions of why we didn't do better, why there's still 70 million of our American citizens, almost half of the population, voting population, who would support someone like Trump, and what it is that we need to do, what it is we're failing to do to ensure that we can somehow or another uh, deal with the weaknesses within our appeal that's, that showed up this time. As young people, one of the critical issues of our time, in fact, perhaps the most important issue we face is climate change. What do you think Biden will do to address this, especially if the Senate stays Republican after the Georgia runoffs? It'll be difficult. On, on the other hand, I think much of the damage that's been done in um, America to the environmental cause in the last four years has been executive action that was taken. And I think much of that will be undone. It's also true that he's made it clear that he favors re-entering the Paris Accord Flawed as it is, actually, uh, but nonetheless, getting joining with other nations around the world to show a, a sense of solidarity, a sense of seriousness about this ex- existential problem. So I think you'll see a difference in tone as well as a difference in action insofar as the executive can take it uh, and in, insofar as international uh, relations can um, be used to improve the situation. It's, it's true, too, that... Um, Environmental issues are tied up with so many other things. I mean, one of the real challenges of the next uh, several decades, for the rest of this century perhaps, is going to be how the West deals and how the U.S. deals with the rise of China. I mean, there are certain areas uh, in which our relationship with the Chinese is going to be adversarial. There are certain areas, areas in which it will be competitive. There are others in which it has to be collaborative. Environment is one where it has to be collaborative. China is the largest polluter on, on Earth at the moment. India is not very far behind. And the United States, uh, despite all the criticism and the rest, has in fact made a fair degree of progress in dealing with some of the more severe problems. We've got a lot further to go, though. And finally, and this might be particularly relevant to our listeners potentially, do you think Trump has permanently changed relations with Europe, for example in his comments about NATO and withdrawing troops from Germany earlier on this year? And how will this relationship between Europeans and the US evolve going into the next four years and beyond? I think one of the most unsettling uh, aspects of the Trump administration has been the degree to which international institutions our alliances have been undermined by his comments, sometimes by articulating policies or statements or positions uh, just on the whim, uh, seemingly. I mean, the comment that basically undermined the fundamental premise of NATO, just as an offside remark almost, uh, that was, to my mind, rather dangerous. Uh, one of the things that I think you can expect from uh, a Biden administration is an effort to reestablish our relationships with international organizations, with multinational organizations and our alliances, um, thinking that 
freedom, freedom-loving countries of the West and others in other parts of the world that are similarly committed to the principles of the rule of law and, and individual freedom, uh, that it is best when we work together and when we try to set the um, rules of the road. I think one of the um, most dangerous, in retrospect, one of the most dangerous actions of the um, Trump administration, we'll look back upon it, was the scrapping of TPP, the effort of countries around the Pacific Rim and elsewhere to try to put in place rules of the road for international trade and all the rest in order, in part, to be in a position to deal with the further rise of China politically, domestically, uh, politically, economically, and militarily. Uh, so I think one, one of the things you'll see is both a restoring of many of those relationships, but also a reshaping of some of them, because many of those institutions indeed that were forged 70 years ago uh, are in need of reform and change. They, they were designed for a d- different world, They still have uh, important roles to play. Uh, Many of the tasks that they've been assigned will continue to to need to be done, but there will be other roles and and ways in which some of that work can be done. So I think you'll see uh, a bit of the phrase that he uh, build back better, both domestically and in international policy, that that's true. I think you'll see those institutions reshaped and to some degree reformulated to meet the needs of our current uh, situation, but uh, basically a restoration. Right, well, I think we'll wrap up there. Thanks very much for listening. Subscribe, give us some stars, leave a review, and above all, we want to hear from you for feedback and future episodes. Give Selwyn Politics Society and European Horizons Cambridge a like on Facebook, and we'll be releasing polls for upcoming topics very soon. Thank you. Thank you.